Well, good morning, church. It's wonderful to be able to spend some time with you guys this morning, to be able to share with you once again as we continue our study in Romans. I'd like to say welcome to those that are joining us in Wills Point and those that are joining us online as well uh, as we continue this study. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to um, Romans chapter 7. And we're going to begin chapter 7 today, and it's, it's a chapter that I particularly have been looking forward to. Um, as Paul begins to unpack for us more of the practicality of our sin nature, um, as he helps us to understand our relation to the law and how that plays a role, how the law has played a role in our life in bringing about an understanding uh, of our sinfulness and just how we have this proclivity to sin and how we can move away from that with a deeper understanding of it. So I'd like to start this morning by reading our text. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6, just to grab a hold of what Paul is conveying to us as he begins um, this idea here in, verse, in chapter 7. So chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And he says in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code." So Paul says here in verse 6 very clearly that we have now been released from the law. So if we've been released to the law, it bears the question, what now is our relationship to the law? So throughout chapter 7, Paul's going to deal with this relationship and how, how we're free from something, but how we still should relate to that something. As you read through chapter 7, you can see that Paul refers to the law 23 times. In 25 verses, 23 times, he refers to the law. But if we look back briefly, if we were to look back at chapter, chapter 5, and toward the end, Paul introduces something in chapter 5 at the end. He introduces this idea of grace and the reign of grace in our life. And then between chapter 5, the end there, chapter 6, chapter 7, on through 8, Paul begins to unpack how grace reigns in our life. And you see this distinction between what the law was, what the law did, what it was there for, but then now what's better, what better has come in the grace that has come. So now under grace in chapter 6 and 7, Paul deals with two extremes. As we look through and we study chapter 6, he deals with this extreme of a license to sin. As he rhetorically asks at the beginning of chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? That are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And Paul says, by no means. We don't do that. So there's not a license to sin. And many people would accuse the church in some ways is whenever we throw out this word grace is that we now have this freedom to do whatever we want because we still 
have this proclivity to sin. And a few weeks ago, Brandon kind of illustrated this, and I can relate, and maybe you can relate, to times in your life where you knew something to be wrong, you knew something to be sinful, and as you approached that thing, you felt the conviction of it, but you went ahead and did it because you told yourself, well, I've already been forgiven, and I'm under grace. That's the extreme of what Paul says, and he addresses that very clearly in chapter 6, that we're no longer slaves to sin, we're dead to sin, And we should then present ourselves to righteousness, to be slaves of righteousness. But the converse of that is not a license to sin, but it is legalism. And this is what he begins to deal with in chapter 7. If chapter 6, we're under grace, and that means we're equal, that equates to being free to sin in the extreme sense. In chapter 7, one could say that we're under grace, but we still have to keep the law in order to have favor and please God. And Paul says, no. Verse 6 of chapter 7, Paul clearly said that we have been released from the law. So he deals with this idea in the extreme sense here in legalism. So chapter 6 deals with how to stop doing bad things, but chapter 7 will deal with how not to do good things. That's what Paul begins to say. But I want to begin with here, of laying out for us what is the law. If you're new to church and, and you've heard this word tossed around, what actually is the law? It's not the Texas Penal Code that you're talking about, I'm pretty sure. So what is the law? Well, throughout the Bible, whenever the law is referred to, it can be referred to as, as a few different things. One, it could be referred to as the Torah, which is actually it's the, the regulating laws for Israel's uh, moral, ceremonial, and civil life how they're to relate to one another, how they relate and serve God, and just all the many laws that are in there. In all of those laws, in the Torah, is the Ten Commandments, but the Lord expanded on those for their moral, civil, and religious life. But oftentimes as well, whenever you read the Word and and the law is referenced, it could be referenced to the entirety of the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But then when you get to the New Testament and people speak of the law, oftentimes they're referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. That would be the law and the prophets. So depending on the context of where you're reading would kind of give you the clarity as to what they're referring to when they say the law. But the thing that I want us to understand and you and I to understand as we look at this today when we talk about the law The law is God's commandment. It's his instruction, specifically in a sense to his people, to his nation and the nation of Israel. But as we've seen earlier in our study, that we are all bound by it. We are all under the law, Jew and Gentile alike. So that's what the law is. But I want to look at what some of the Old Testament says about the law. All right, so we can get a better understanding of what it is and what it means to have the law. So look with me, we'll have it on the screen as well, but in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, the psalmist says this about the law. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In verse 10, he says, It is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. 
But note in those verses right there, he says he references the law, then he calls it the testimony, then the precepts, the commandment, it's the rules. All of these are monikers for God's law. And it is sure, it is right, it is pure, enlightening to the eyes, it endures forever, it is clean, it is true and righteous, altogether righteous. And if you jump to Psalm 119, and mind you, Psalm 119 um, is in its entirety, it's the longest book of the Bible, and in its entirety is all talking about God's law and God's word. And here's some of the things that the psalmist says in 119 about the word. He says, starting in verse 12, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord. And he says, Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And then from there, through the, through the entirety of that psalm, just time after time, just highlighting the psalmist's absolute need and the necessity of being and having God's word and his command and his law, all the way to 119 and, and verse 174. He says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, uh, the writer says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So when we, we look at one aspect of it in, in the Psalms, and just as, as the Psalm by means of worship highlight their delight in the law and how we should love the law and what it can do for us here, you can switch gears in some ways to Ecclesiastes as he says, fear God, but then he commands to keep the commandments. And he says, this is the whole duty of man. At one point in time in human history, when it came to God's law, the whole duty of man, he said, surrounds keeping those commands. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, at the beginning there in verses 1 and 2, um, Moses writing, he says this, he says, now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. So it comes with promise. You keep his commandments so that your days may be long. But the converse is certainly true, is that if you do not keep his commandments, there will be a curse upon you. You will be destroyed. But then he follows in verse 4 there. This is called the Shema. Or it's the Shema means to hear. And he begins in verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, shall, and they shall be on, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you jump down to verse 17, he says, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. From Deuteronomy, if you jump to Joshua, after they take the land and after all the allotments are made and people take the inheritance and he's sending back the eastern tribes across the Jordan after they fulfill their commitment to the people. In Joshua 22.5, he says, Only be careful 
to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And if you jump from Joshua to the end of the New Testament to Malachi verse, chapter 4, verse 4, at the very end, the last book of the New Testament before God goes silent for 400 years, through the prophet Malachi, he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So you see, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, and all in between, God's law is to be exalted. It is to be followed. It is to be obeyed. Life and death will fall, will come, will, will be present within the people of God based on them following God's law or not following God's law. And then this continues on into the New Testament where there is much zeal that is continued and such is the case for even Paul. If you were to read Philippians 3, I don't think I have this on your screen, but I'll read this for you. In uh, Philippians 3, 5 and 6, Paul, speaking of himself, he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. It means he was a religious leader. He was a teacher of the law. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul was the guy that kept the law in its entirely. I mean, to a T, every bit of the law, he had it, he kept it, he obeyed it, he even taught it to other people. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He served the law in such a way that he was a persecutor of the church. He had Christians killed on behalf of his duty to the law. But then now, even in Romans chapter 7, in verse 12, a text for weeks to come, Paul says this, he says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In verse 22, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Jesus himself says of the law in Matthew 5, verse 17, 18, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end and all the way through the New Testament, the law is to be exalted and it will be fulfilled. It will be accomplished. So the law is a wonderful thing. It is true, it is pure, it is righteous altogether. It's everything good written in the hand of God, given to Moses for the people, for their good, for his glory. It is a wonderful, glorious thing that is the law. But before we look at what is it for, let's look at what it cannot do first. Let's go back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. Paul says this regarding the law. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And he has contended in chapter 2 that we are all under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Did you catch that? In the entirety of all of that, in the wonder and glory of God's law, that it is to be exalted Above all things, here he says that no human being will be justified. That is justified. That is that we will not be saved. The law cannot save you. So if it's wonderful and good and everything that's right in this world, 
but it cannot save you. What is it for? Begs the question, right? What is it for? Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law came in to increase the trespass. What's it for? To increase the trespass. To make clear for us our absolute need for that that grace that abounds all the more. Our absolute need for a Savior. If the law can't save you, we need grace and we need a Savior. And it's the very thing that gives us the realization of that need. The church, it doesn't fall as heavy on us today as what it would have for sure fell on the first century Jew. For the first century Jew, and even Jews, even today, still today, who spent their entire life, a lifetime, holding the law, obeying the law, every single day, doing what the law required. And now all of a sudden, this former Pharisee is going to stand up here and he's going to say that you're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. When Paul gets to chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you're under grace. That statement would be a, just damaging to the psyche of the Jew. Wrapping their mind around it would, would be scarce to happen. They would harden their heart. They would turn it off. They wouldn't hear anything else he said. So it, it necessitated an explanation. And Paul gives that explanation in two parts. And I'm, I'm getting to our text today, I promise. But just building this picture here, when we look at chapter 6, verse 14, in two parts, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you. And he explains that statement in, in verses 15 through 23 in chapter 6. But when he says, since you are not under law, but under grace, and that necessitates explanation, he begins to unpack that here in chapter 7. As to how then we relate to the law. So as it brings us to our text today, finally, Paul begins to explain his statement. He begins to settle the hearts of his readers, but begins to help us understand this wonderful truth today. And that is how we relate to the law. What is it for today in the life of a believer? So Paul says here, he's going to give us an obvious truth. One, He's going to give us an illustration of that obvious truth. There's going to be an application and then there's going to be an affirmation of that as well in these six verses. But the obvious truth is in verse 1. Paul says, or do you not know? I mean, the way he said it, it's like, or do you not know? It's like you should know. Because it's going to be obvious what I'm about to say. So he says, or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, making clear Those who know the law, he's either speaking to the Jews specifically who know the law in that sense, but a Gentile could learn from this as well because a Gentile Roman under Roman law certainly knew the absolute authority that can come down from breaking the Roman law. But nonetheless, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And then he says this, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. I could resist the urge to say, duh, but I didn't. But if you look back at chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says a very similar, in some ways, obvious truth. Right? He presents a question in verse 15 of chapter 6. 
He says, what, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He says, by no means. But then he says this, do you not know? This is obvious, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one who, whom you obey. Well, yeah, all right, that makes sense. The same argument, he's in, in introducing a principle that he's about to use to bring about an understanding of the concept that he's getting across. In chapter 6, is that we're slaves to sin, now we should be slaves to righteousness. But here he says, or do you not know the obvious truth is that the law is binding on a person only as he lives. And then verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration or an analogy for that principle, for that truth. He says this, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, thus breaking the law. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this is an illustration for what Paul just said. We need to be careful to keep this in context and not look at this as Paul doing an entirely new teaching on marriage and divorce and all that. It's not about marriage and divorce and those things. It's just an analogy or an illustration to bring about that obvious truth is that when we die, when something dies, the thing that it was over that thing is no longer over it. If we're under a law and we die, we no longer have the ability to break that law, so we're free from that law, such as the case with this woman. She's married to a husband. She is bound by the law of marriage to stay with that husband. She is not free to go and marry another. But if that husband dies, she is released and she is free. So Paul says in verse 4 and 5, here's now the application of that principle. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He takes that analogy and begins to apply it to us. He says, you also have died. The word there, it's, it's the violent form of that word, uh, have died. It's, it's, what he's saying is, you have been put to death, essentially, is what he's communicating in the Greek. You have been put to death, but it's by God. You didn't commit suicide. Someone else put you to death, but you died spiritually. You died a spiritual death to be raised spiritually. So you were put to death. You've died to the law. Remember from chapter 6, we died to sin. Sin no longer reigns in our life. We're no longer a slave to sin so that we could then turn and be a slave to righteousness. Paul deals with the law in a very similar way is that we died, we're now released from that law. But recall that the law could not justify us, it couldn't redeem us, it couldn't save us, but the law could condemn us. But whenever we die to the law, we're no longer condemned by it. It was, it was it, this is a past tense curse for us. Galatians 3, 13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul says we have died to the law. And that is through the body of Christ. And then he says, so that you may belong to another. That's to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
sort of application and, and purpose here. We die to sin to be free from sin. We die to the law to be released and free from the law. It's through the body of Christ. But here's the purpose. It is so that, so that you can belong to another. To go back to the analogy, the, the, the woman, whether she desired to or not, be married to someone else, but that's not the point of the analogy, but whether she desired to or, desired to or not, is it irrelevant? She's married to this husband. But in order for her to be free to marry another, this husband has to die. And as soon as that happens, she is free. So it is with us. But who is it that died here? We need to be careful not to, not to put the wrong thing in the wrong place. It's not the law that died. The law wasn't her husband in the analogy. The law wasn't the thing that died. So what is it that died? Well, we did. As he says, you have died. You were put to death. It is the spiritual death. It is the sin nature. It's our proclivity to sin that died. Chapter 6, we were raised with Christ. We live with him. But it is so that we can then belong to another. It's the same word belong there as in chapter in verse 3 where she marries another man. When she's free to do so, when we die, we are free to belong to another and that is to who? It is to him who has been raised from the dead. It is to Jesus Christ. The picture here for us is Ephesians 5. This is that the church is the bride of Christ. Spotless, blameless, waiting in purity for our bridegroom. Revelation 19, we would share in the wedding supper of the Lord. We are his bride. We died to that which would disable us, would not enable us to be connected to Christ. And all of this, again, now in order that, mark that in your Bible, all this in order that we may bear fruit for God. So it's not just... It's not just this idea of, hey, we get saved and we get to go to heaven and we don't have to go to hell. We die to the law so that we can be united with Christ, but it's in order that we may bear fruit for God. There's something that we would do there. We don't, this doesn't happen so we can just sit down and do nothing and just be slothful so that we're not pure and clean whenever our bridegroom comes. That's not the idea. It's to bear fruit for God. And this is the purpose. This is the result of having died to the law through the body of Christ and belonging to him is so that we would bear fruit for specifically God. We would no longer bear fruit for ourselves. We wouldn't bear fruit for the law. We wouldn't bear fruit for the world, anything else. We would bear fruit for God. Again, going back to chapter 6, verse 8, it says, We have died with Christ. We believe we also live with him. This is our salvation. And salvation is transformation. Transformation leads to sanctification. The act of being set apart, being made holy. We're dead to the law. We're united with Christ. This brings forth fruit for God. John MacArthur said, and I agree with him, that there is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Church, we should be bearing fruit. If we were to say and understand this truth that we have died to sin and we're alive to God, as he says in chapter 6, verse 8 and 9, he says here that if we've died to the law, we have now been connected to, we've been married to, we belong to Christ, and it's in order that we would bear fruit for God. So if we're believers, if we're Christians, if we're Christ followers, if this has happened to us, church, we should be bearing fruit. 
And the converse of that is marriage to sin brought condemnation through the law. And that brought forth fruit for death. Not fruit for God. But fruit for God here is if you're saved, you're going to bear fruit for God. That will be present. Galatians 5 a few weeks ago. So we talked about just the flesh and the spirit there, but the fruit of the spirit in 5, 22 and 23 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is attitude fruit. In action, action fruit would be giving of yourself. Anything that you do in action for God, for God's glory. Caring for one another. Serving the needs of others. Giving to the needs of others. That's bearing fruit in action for God. Specifically. Whatever those things may be, whenever you do that here, if you're on the First Impressions team, all those people that you saw when you came in this morning, greeting you, shaking your hands, checking you in, making sure coffee's filled, those people are bearing fruit for God by serving the body here. That is a practical application of this truth right here. And Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches in John 15, 5. He says, you remain in me and I in you, you will bear fruit But where does the fruit grow? If he's the vine, we're the branches. The fruit grows on the branches. But the only way they're going to grow on the branches is if it remains connected to the vine. So what is it that's actually producing the fruit? Are the branches producing the fruit? No, it's the vine that's producing the fruit through the branches. And that's because we belong to him. We died to something that was utterly unfruitful. It was condemning in every way. But through the body of Christ being united to Him and belonging to Him now, He now produces that fruit in us. And it is for God. Once again, we were a slave to sin, but now we are a slave to righteousness. We're His bondservant. And He brings about good things in us. There's nothing good in us. Paul has made clear, utterly clear, that there's nothing good in us. But dying to these things, dying to sin... And dying to the law, connecting with Christ, everything changes. Every bit of good that comes in us comes from the Lord. If you look at verse 5, Paul says why the opposite happens. And he says, for while we were living in the flesh, that's not connected to the vine, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So while we were living in the flesh. So he introduces something here. For the first time in Romans, and it's this idea of flesh. It's not our physical bodies. There's nothing wrong with our physical bodies. Our physical bodies are not evil in some material way, as some philosopher may have said at some point in time in history. But our physical bodies, there's no evil connotation there. So when Paul says, in the flesh, our sinful passions, Paul's introducing this new concept. It refers to our sinful nature. It's our fallen nature. It's our carnality, right? It is these sinful desires. It's the lust of our heart, the pride of life, the lust of our eyes. That is the flesh that he's talking about. So in the moral sense, it will always carry an evil connotation whenever you read of the flesh in the New Testament as Paul introduces this. But if you, again, recall from a few weeks ago, we talked about the flesh and the spirit in Galatians 5 always constantly being opposed to one another. One is holy, righteous, and good, and the other is unholy, unrighteous, and most certainly and most assuredly not good. 
But for the believer, it is imperative for us to understand the distinction here that Paul is saying. It's for while we are in the flesh, that is physically, remember Jesus came in the flesh, right? the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. But ethically and morally, we are not living in the flesh. Though we live in the flesh. You see, I mean, it can get confusing if we're not careful. And you think about that, but understand the distinction that Paul is saying. For while we were living in the flesh, past tense, it's in our sin nature and our sinful desires and our carnality and our fallen state. When we were living in that, we gave ourselves over to those things. And we still live there. We still can struggle there. One of the questions, two of the questions that we ask our journey groups to talk about often as they're sharing and they're, they're meeting and they're discussing and they're sharing what they're learning in God's Word, two of the questions that we like to, them to be asking one another. And I encourage you as believers, as the body of Christ here who have been dead to sin now and dead to the law and alive to Christ and, and all of the things that we talk about now, one of the questions that you could begin asking yourself and asking others is how have you struggled in the flesh? And the follow-up question there is, how have you fed it? Now, an example for that, and then speaking personally for me, is my ditch oftentimes can be frustration, which very quickly goes to anger. Right? So that's in my flesh. I can give in to that anger. I can give myself over to it. The way I feed it is that I talk rudely to my wife. I'm short with other people. I'm not kind. I'm not gentle. I'm not loving, I'm not joyful, I'm not peaceable, I'm not patient. All the fruit of the Spirit can, can begin to go away because I'm acting and giving myself over to the flesh, which is opposed to that Spirit. Do you see the picture? That's why we should be asking ourselves, is, is by way of accountability, that how we are struggling in the flesh and how we have fed it. We have sinful passions, our desires, our emotions, our impulses. Those things are aroused by the law. Here's what he means. You might ask yourself, how can a good law create evil passion? Well, two ways here. First of all, the law, it reveals evil. right? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't know evil passion. You'd only know passion. Until there was a standard that told you that was evil, you would just, I just got a passion. And you fulfill it. Your conscience, chapter 2, would bear witness against you in some things, but you wouldn't know it. So the law reveals evil, gives you knowledge of that to understand that you are now sinning. But secondly, the law arouses or it excites sinful passion because nothing is more appealing than that which is forbidden. Think about that for a minute. Don't look down. How many of y'all just look down? Every time you hear that statement, somebody is looking down. Don't look down. I bet somebody just looked down again. But think of your kids. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Put that down. When something is forbidden, there's this proclivity in our nature to do it, to rebel against it. But let's fast, let's not fast forward, let's rewind. Let's look back to the garden. Right? When, and when everything was perfect, sin had not entered into the world yet. Follow this, track with me for a minute. Before anything bad ever happened, before sin came to be, how did sin come to be? There was something that was forbidden, the forbidden fruit, right? They didn't know that it was sweeter. 
For however long in the garden, they did not eat of it until someone came and deceived them, until someone interjected doubt in their minds and then drew that out of them. But once that happened, now in our flesh, there's that proclivity. If it's forbidden, I want it. I want to rebel against that thing. But while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. And this is at work in our members, our physical selves, he says, to bear fruit for death. And this draws us back to chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. When we give ourselves over in that way, when we gave ourselves over in that way, it bore fruit for death. We would die. We have the principle, we have an illustration of it, we have an application of it. Now, verse 6, as we wrap up, is the affirmation of it. He says, but now, in light of that, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. That is the flesh and its desires. Galatians 2, 19 and 20, uh, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then 524, he says, And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see the distinction. As I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In 524, I've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And it is so that, so that, underline that, the reason for it, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He says that we were released from the law so that we could now not, not do whatever we want, not so we could have a license to sin, it's not why we were freed from the law. But this right here answers directly Paul's question in chapter 6. Both rhetorical questions in verse 1 and verse 15. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Well, by no means. We were released. We died to what kept us captive so that we can then what? We can serve. Not free to do whatever we want. Slaves of righteousness, so that we can serve, but serve in a new way, in the Spirit, right? That's internally, and not in the old way or the written code, in the external application of the law. Jesus contended all the time in, in, in His ministry with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that kept the letter of the law, such as the Apostle Paul before he was an apostle, when his name was Saul, and he was a Pharisee, and he was a persecutor of the church, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And all of those things, Jesus would contend with them and say, outwardly you look like whitewashed tombs, but inwardly you're dead men's bones. You keep the law, but you absolutely and utterly could not be further from the Lord. And Paul says, now you've been released from that so that you can serve in the Spirit. and You're no longer held to the written external code. So being released from the law frees us from its condemnation. It cannot save us, but no longer can condemn us. We're now free to serve the law rather than keep it. 
And as the gospel age has come, we're introduced to a new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, he says this of the new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for thou shalt all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Church, this is the age that we are now in. This is the covenant that we are married into. By the way of that analogy, we have died to the law. We've been released to the law so that we can belong now to Christ. And under His headship, we can be slaves to His righteousness. His righteousness given to us so that we would bear fruit for God. That we would serve in the Spirit in an entirely new way with His law, not externally needing to be a bunch of stuff we've got to keep up with, but it would be written on our hearts and we would serve it in our hearts and in our spirit. Church, I pray that we understand more deeply with each passing day which side of this we are on. We're free to live now. We're free to serve in a holy new way. And I cannot stress how meaningful that is for the believer to understand and grab a hold of that truth, what, they were, what we were once bound to, even as Gentiles condemned under that, but now released from that. The freedom Christ-likeness, to holiness, to righteousness. One day to be made perfect. In this flesh that we live, one day this flesh is going to not be anymore. It's going to be glorified. We're going to have received glorified bodies. I encourage you to do some research on a glorified body. This body of sin will come to nothing. And we will continue to be free to live and to serve in a new and wonderful, spirit-filled way. That's my desire for us, church. It's my desire for you. That's my desire for my own heart to remember that truth, remind myself of that truth. I'm not free to sin, but I don't have to keep a bunch of rules. But according to this, I do have to serve but I serve out of obedience because of what he has done for me. That is the difference. So that I may not be a whitewashed tomb, but inwardly be dead men's bones. I would be life from the inside out because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for today. Well, I thank you for the law, Lord, and The lesson, the the wonder of it, the truth of it, Lord, that it is true and righteous. It's everything that's good. 
But I thank you mostly, Lord, and morally that you have fulfilled it. You've met its legal demands on my behalf so that I might die to that, that I might be connected to you in, in, in a way that, that was never possible while I was under that law. And I pray that for every person today, Lord, that would hear your truth, that they would search your scripture, Lord, for deeper understanding of what you've done for them, Lord, and a clarity of purpose in giving their life to you, Lord, and serving you, Lord, with everything that they have, Lord, for your glory, for the good of your people, Lord, for the betterment of the world around us. We are not under law, but we are under grace, Lord. And that's a wonderful thing. We thank you and we praise you for it. It's the reason we're here. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.